0: Hi everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nandini.
1: I'm Zach, and today we are thrilled to have Ben Steele with us. Dr. Steele is a Senior Fellow and the Director of International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. At CFR, Dr. Steele commentates on global politics, particularly in relation to international finance, authors op-eds and books, and appears on cable TV and other news media. He is the author of The Battle of Bretton Woods, John Maynard Keynes, Harry Dexter White, and The Making of a New World Order, which was shortlisted for the Lionel Gelber Prize for Nonfiction and won the Spears Book Award in Financial History in 2013. His latest book is called The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, and it details how the Marshall Plan connected the U.S. to an integrated capitalist Western Europe.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Steele. To get us started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point—a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share such a moment with us?
2: Yeah, I I, I think that came in um, uh, in graduate school. Um, I was always torn when, when, as an undergrad, about what I what I should do in my career. My family wanted me to be, to be practical. Um, but I always had a more academic bent, uh, and I sort of hedged my bets, uh, by going off to Oxford and doing a degree in management studies, which wasn't, wasn't quite like an MBA. It was more academic than that, but sounded practical enough to make mom and dad happy. But while I was there, I really kind of, I fell in love with academics. I got a scholarship to stand to do a PhD. I transitioned to, uh, economics. Um, and that was that was the point at which I decided, you know, I, I, I will be much happier just marching to my own beat and, and, and following my heart and, and, and becoming an, uh, an academic.
1: What did you what, what interested you about academics or academia?
2: Um, I, I, I love the fact that I was always discovering new things, having epiphanies. They might not be glorious discoveries to people who were much older and more experienced and more illustrious than, than I. But I, I, I just love that experience of constantly discovering things that uh, help make, make sense of the world. Mm-hmm.
0: So you are the founding editor of the peer-reviewed academic journal, International Finance. The journal covers policy-relevant analysis in macroeconomics and finance. What motivated you to create this publication, and who is your target audience?
2: Um, An editor at the um, uh, publisher at the time, which was Blackwell, was eventually taken over by uh, Wiley, had actually come to me. Um, When I was in London at a similar think tank called the Royal Institute of International Affairs or Chatham House and said um, that he was looking for a a new journal for his stable that would be rigorous in terms of its economics but would be literate and policy focused. Um, And economists are not typically noted for being literate. (laughs) Uh, and uh, oftentimes not policy-focused either. So it, it's, you know, it really sounded very um, uh, attractive to me to, to start up something like that, and I've been gratified to see it move from success to success. And I've also been impressed about um, uh, how the world has changed over the, the 20 years in which I've, I've been the editor. For example, um, even 10 years ago, I had no contributions from China. Now I'm flooded with contributions from China. When they first started coming in, they were of extremely poor quality. Now they're of a much better quality. Some papers of absolutely excellent quality. So you can really feel um, the tectonic shift in the uh, academic world moving towards um, towards China.
1: Now, when, when one of your CFR colleagues, um, when giving talking about your book, um, commended you for being an excellent writer. And as you just said, um, that's kind of rare. And... Economist, um, how did you become a good writer? Like, Did you um, write in your undergrad and graduate careers or wh- why was that a focus for
2: you? I think my, my teachers in high school always thought I was going to be an English major and I always had this sense of guilt that I was um, uh, letting them down. Uh, by by moving in the du- direction of economics, but I also loved economics because I loved the I loved the, the the logic and the rigor behind it. So combining it with writing for for me was um, was, was really the the ultimate. I think what makes a good writer is um, empathy empathy with the reader, um, being able to split your mind in in two. Uh, in other words. Um, Uh, Being able to become an an expert uh, on a a certain area, uh, but also to be able to communicate it in a way that um, a reader who hasn't had your experiences can fully appreciate. Um, so, for example, when I, when I write a first draft of something, I always print it out and I scrub my brain. I, I pretend I, I haven't even written it and I, I literally read it with, with um, fresh eyes mm-hmm. uh, as if I'm an entirely different person. And uh, and then I do massive edits from that point. So being schizophrenic, having uh, empathy with the reader, I think this is exceptionally important.
1: When you're writing nonfiction, do you think you need empathy with the subject or is that –
2: Nothing. Oh, absolutely! In order to make it compelling, absolutely. I mean, if you don't have a passion about the subject, the reader will know. There's no doubt.
0: So you have won uh, the 2010 Hayek Prize from the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research for your book Money, Markets, and Sovereignty and the 2013 Spears Book Award in Financial History for the, bla- the Battle of Bretton Woods. You've clearly had a very successful clear, uh, career as an author and mixing your career as an economist and um, as a writer. So what has been the most rewarding experience or your most rewarding takeaway from your writing endeavors?
2: Um, The most rewarding experience I ever had in my life as a a writer was on book tour for this particular book. Um, I was sort of hopping around the country and I got an invitation out of nowhere to do this roundtable in Minnesota. It was outside of Minneapolis, a semi-rural area. When it was called um, the M- Minnesota World War II History Roundtable, and it was a Thursday evening, six thirty p.m. And I said, "Yeah, fine," because I could do something else in Minneapolis. Um, uh, but I didn't. I had no idea what to expect. Um, so I, I arrived there that that evening and to see this massive crowd of local people, not, not your typical Council on Foreign Relations um, uh, members, you know, people with um, suit a and, suit and tie, but real local people, 300 people showed up, including kids. Um, and they had um, a, a local teacher, uh, um, a social studies teacher, who started out by talking to the students about World War II and how the Marshall Plan fit in. And there was um, uh, an an old woman who was born in Britain um, who had lived through the war, talked about her experience. And after my my own presentation, there was a panel of um, uh, four, again, Europeans, three Germans, and a pole who had lived through World War II. And the whole evening was was just um, so deeply gratifying t- to me to be able to connect with um, real people in the heartland of uh, uh, of America about um, a subject that was not only important to me but I think should be important um, uh, to this country it's sort of the the um, a pinnacle of our um, foreign policy um, uh, creations
1: um, in your work at CFR um, are those people do you wish those people were your audience, um, or are you, you know, mainly worried about you know influencing policy folk in D.C. or New York?
2: Well, we're 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 always interested in, in influencing policy at, at CFR. We are a policy oriented think tank. Um, our president Richard ha- Haas, is a sort of wonk's wonk. Uh, comes very much from a, a policy background. He was um, head of policy planning at the State Department. Um, but we also take it as um, our mission to um, uh, educate the American public about important issues in uh, foreign affairs. Um, and, yeah, I feel most gratified when I'm connecting with people who are outside the, 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 the beltway, when I can make them feel the passion for a policy issue or a great historical period um, that, that I myself feel um that that's the most gratifying thing
0: so you are the senior fellow and director of international economics at cfr so what have been your main goals in this position
2: They've sort of evolved over time. Um, as I, I told you, when I started my career, I was more practically focused. So I had written a PhD on currency options and using currency options for uh, managing foreign exchange risk. And um, But I always had this politics for, passion for politics. Um, and so after I finished my PhD, I, I, um, I decided that I wanted to move into the think tank world. Um, and do something on the border of economics and politics. And since that time, I, I've, I guess I've moved slow, slowly in the direction of, um, uh, of, of politics and, and the history of uh, diplomacy because I think that's where my, my real passion lay. So I started out writing about things like uh, financial market regulation. And um, I think the, the key moment for me as a writer came – um, uh, at the time of the financial crisis in 2009, uh, when I was trying to figure out what I should do next and somebody came to me and said that, um, uh, his agent was looking for a book on Bretton Woods because suddenly people were saying, we need a new Bretton Woods. World leaders were called, like t- Tony Blair was calling for a new Bretton Woods, um, what was the old original one all about? And I thought this would be a fascinating time to take a look at it. Nobody had done that before um, and found that it was an absolutely amazing story. Um, it was about much more than economics. It, 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 it was a, a story about spycraft, which, which I hadn't realized. And that um, uh, got me falling in love with um, Cold War history. Um, thus, the Marshall Plan, and as you see, Dawn of the Cold War is actually the subtitle of that book.
1: Yeah, can we talk about your book on the on the Bretton Woods? Uh, was it a, it was a conference or?
2: Um, Bretton Woods was, was a-, um, a, a major international conference yeah. in nineteen forty four. Yeah. Um, which led to the creation of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, um, and a dollar-based international monetary mm-hmm. system. And you talk
1: about the switch from the do- from the primacy of the pound um, mm-hmm. to the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, for our audience, what was the what were the conditions that made that possible, and what were some of the political maneuverings that went on at the conference that um, kind of influenced the outcome of that?
2: Well, um, two world wars um, uh, had reduced. Britain from the role of the world's greatest creditor to the world's largest debtor. Um, And the United States really took advantage of that during um, World War II. Uh, We came to uh, control nearly two thirds of the world's monetary gold stock. Um, And so at the time, it's hard for us to imagine now, but in the popular imagination, gold was money. Um, And paper money was essentially a voucher that was exchangeable for gold. And the only credible voucher in the world um, during World War II was the the U.S. dollar. Um, And so the Battle of Bretton Woods is really a story about how the United States um, uh, used this opportunity um, to change the world order, to force liquidation of the um, uh, British Empire. Um, and to make the uh, dollar and um, U.S. economic policy um, supreme uh, on the world stage.
0: So in what ways do you think that we um, in the modern day in the United States are facing the implications of what happened at the Bretton Woods?
2: Um, Since the early 1970s, um, we've basically been improvising. Um, In 1971, President Nixon closed what was called the gold window, Um, and that was the the last vestige of uh, the connection between paper money or now digital money um, and and gold. Um, And since then, there hasn't been any system as such um, uh, to replace it. The U.S. dollar has remained predominant. Uh, But that's not because of anything that's been legislated um, or agreed. Um, It's had mainly to do with the fact that there haven't been um, any good uh, alternatives. Uh, Most recently, people speculated that the Chinese RMB um, could at some point uh, in the future challenge the U.S. dollar. Um, But we've actually seen uh, the internationalization of the RMB go into reverse in the past few years as China's been um, uh, struggling with um, rising debt and um, capital outflows. So, I mean, despite um, uh, all the problems that the United States has, um, the dollar is more supreme than it's been in quite a long period. Um,
1: Do you know much about the switch off the gold standard? I mean, can you talk about how – what sort of um, kind of marketing or communications was required – by the US and, and the international monetary system to switch from a gold standard which had a huge legacy of value and a long history of being valued to like a fiat currency
2: well um, uh, the the gold standard of the late 19th century was very different from the the Bretton Woods system. Okay. Um, in the late 19th century, monetary policy was essentially dictated by the flow of gold across borders. In other words, as gold would enter um, uh, the United States, um, interest rates would naturally come down, credit conditions would be um, uh, relaxed. When gold would flow out, interest rates would have to come back up in order to attract gold back into the, the, the country. So there was really much less room for discretion in the operation of monetary policy. Um, under the Bretton Woods uh, system, Um, which lasted, as I said, until 1971, Um, the dollar was backed by gold um, at a rate of $35 per ounce. Uh, But the United States refused to give up um, any sort of uh, discretion. And by the 1960s, the system was falling apart. Um, as the French and others were demanding their gold back because they didn't believe that the United States was going to be capable of maintaining this um, uh, stated um, uh, exchange rate. So it was really a very different system. Uh, And now, of course, um, we, we no longer have any um, uh, fundamental connection between national monies and gold. Although, interestingly enough, central banks still hold um, uh, considerable stocks of gold, which is really a vestige of um, the millennia in which people saw um, gold as having inherent value. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you talked about how um, gold, you know, kind of dictated countries' monetary policy. Um, For those without much experience in economics, um, especially macroeconomics, can you talk about now how countries use currency um, and their own monetary policy as a foreign policy tool?
2: Well, the United States in particular um, uh, does that because um, nine out of ten foreign exchange transactions um, involve the dollar in some capacity. So there are very few international transactions that don't ultimately touch um, uh, the U.S. financial system and the U.S. banking system. And we're able to use this um, to sanction countries. Um, that pursue policies that we find objectionable. Um, North Korea, um, I- Iran, um, uh, it's led to conflict with our allies at times who often disagree with the way we use um, uh, these policies. Um, the Russian government um, is actually implementing policies now to try to discourage um, uh, their internationally uh, uh, operating companies from uh, doing transactions in dollars. They're talking about um, putting special taxes on transactions that take place um, uh, in dollars. But no one has thus far Um, found a way to do international transactions without ultimately relying on the the U.S. dollar. So we we are able to use it for foreign policy purposes, but it's sort of like antibiotics. If you overuse it, it becomes less effective um, uh, over time as um, uh, uh, just like with antibiotics, um, you have uh, bacteria developing um, resistant uh, strains. Uh, Likewise, if the U.S. overuses Um, uh, uh, the uh, sanction mechanism, you will find new types of international transactions um, springing up that um, uh, don't ultimately rely on the dollar. Um, We've already seen countries like Iran trading in oil, trading in gold, Um, North Korea, for example, hacking um, uh, cryptocurrency in, in South Korea. So countries are looking for um, alternatives.
0: So, speaking of foreign policy, you recently wrote a book about the Marshall Plan. So, how do you think the goals of U.S. foreign aid has changed since the day of the Martian days of the Marshall Plan?
2: Well. Um- Uh, the the U.S. had um, uh, very specific objectives um, in using this um, uh, foreign aid after uh, World War II. It wasn't just humanitarian. There was no doubt there was a humanitarian uh, element to it. Um, uh, Western Europe was having terrible difficulties recovering from the the damage that had been inflicted by the war. But there was also massive social and political instability. Um, But the US was ultimately concerned with geostrategy, and that is the potential for the Soviet Union um, expanding its uh, influence um, uh, westward um, in Europe. Um, The United States was uh, determined to withdraw its three million troops um, from Europe um, after the war. So the question then became, how do we um, support our vital economic and security interest in Europe without having to rely on the military. Mm -hmm. Um, So we started looking for mechanisms of in effect asymmetric warfare. Um, Could we compete with the Soviets who had conventional military superiority in Europe without relying on the military? And one mechanism uh, we found for doing that was to leverage our own economic dominance in the world. Um, We accounted for more than half the world's manufacturing uh, output after World War II. And it was also a unique period in that we had uh, a a monopoly on uh, atomic weapons, which allowed us to take certain security risks that we would not have otherwise been able to take. So over the decades since the Marshall Plan, many people have proposed new Marshall Plans for different parts of the world, different types of problems and climate change, uh, 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 refugee flows, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody has been able to imitate or even badly replicate the Marshall Plan.
1: In talking about the Marshall Plan, one thing you said is that you realized um, that people mattered, that the political leaders present in the negotiations were instrumental um, in actually getting those plans to succeed. Um, Can you talk about examples of that?
2: Sure. Um, uh, President um, Truman – had never intended um, to overthrow the foreign policy architecture that had been handed down to him by um, uh, FDR. Um, He was determined to try to reach um, accommodation with the um, uh, Soviet Union. But circumstances taught him um, that this was not going to be possible. And President Truman, I would argue, was much better at delegating authority than FDR was. And he empowered uh, people, Um, many of whom had been part of the FDR administration, but in some senses had been conscientious objectors who um, uh, had difficulties with various aspects of FDR's foreign policy and sometimes domestic policy. Uh, People like George Kennan, who's um, the the father of the containment strategy and one of the architects of the Marshall Plan. Uh, People like Will Clayton, who is the undersecretary of economic uh, affairs and in many ways, as I explained in the book, the father of the European Union. It was his idea to make European economic and political integration um, a a key element uh, of the Marshall Plan. Um, uh, The appointment of George Marshall as secretary of state Um, was truly inspired because Truman was faced with a hostile Republican Congress and General Marshall um, was held in enormous regard throughout the country, including by the Republican opposition. So I think President Truman did an extraordinary job in empowering the right people uh, at the time to um, uh, make decisions. The people really did matter. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Thinking uh, quickly about the current... You know, ongoing trade talks. Um, can you make an assessment of the political leaders in those trade talks? Not just the president, but also the you know trade representative, um, administration officials in the State Department. Um, kind of the analogs um, of the those who were influential in the Marshall Plan.
2: Sure. Um, well, uh, we're, we're living through a period um, right now that's very different from any we've lived through since the Second World War. Um, up until the Trump administration, um, the United States had been uh, fully dedicated um, to building a multilateral uh, trading system. Within that um, uh, multilateral system, um, we produced various uh, regional trading arrangements like, um, like uh, NAFTA. Um, and these um, had political aims as well as economic aims. For example, NAFTA was not never supposed to be just about economics, free trade in uh, North America. It was about uh, fundamentally reshaping in a positive way uh, political relations between the United States and Mexico, and I think it, it succeeded enormously. Um, it um, uh, helped uh, security cooperation between the United States and Mexico, um, uh, TPP, um which um, uh, uh, President Obama had um, ne- negotiated um, and now has been, as you know, ditched by by uh, President uh, Trump, um, had the aim of um, cementing a uh, Western, norms um, of uh, economic interaction in the um, uh, Asia-Pacific as a way of preventing China from um, setting those uh, regionally. Um, Now we have an administration that doesn't believe in that approach. Um, believes that America can get better deals by working bilaterally with other countries because of the fact that the United States is always more dominant when it's operating one-on-one with countries. Mm -hmm. Personally, I feel this is misguided. Um, uh, One of the great uh, things we did during the Marshall Plan was produce alliances um, like NATO, for example, that have endured over generations because um, we shared common fundamental values with um, other countries. For example, Western Europe, in the Asia-Pacific, in particular South Korea and Japan. And now that we are far less dominant economically and militarily in the world than we were after World War II, those alliances are actually more valuable to us. It allows us to punch above our weight um, uh, uh, diplomatically. And I personally think it's deeply misguided for us to allow um, uh, these alliances to to dissipate, to to fall apart. Um, It allows... um, uh, other countries like um, uh, China and Russia um, to uh, offer what are, in, in, in essence, better short-term deals um, uh, to our um, uh, uh, allies. Um, and we're basically conceding um, the moral ground hmm. for economic interaction. I think that's unfortunate.
0: So the last question we ask all of our guests is, "What is your personal definition of success, hmm. and how would you help students define success for themselves?"
2: No, I, I think it's you know we we all face great pressures from from our parents, um, from our friends, from society at large um, to be successful according to definitions that don't always jive with with how we feel, and. Um, It is, of course, important to establish a base of economic security for yourself. Most of us want to to, um, uh, get married and and have kids and and you need a a basic um, security foundation for that. But I think it's so important um, to to follow your heart and pick a vocation um, that you really feel passionate about where you actually want to go to work in the morning, even if you didn't need the money, even if you won the lottery, you would still want to go to work in the morning. And that's how I feel about my work at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, uh, Yes, um, I need to make a living to support my family. um, But even if I didn't, um, it's a place where I would love to come to work in the morning, where I always feel Um, intellectually stimulated and and challenged. And I think that that's, um, that's so important for students to remember as they consider all the options open to them in life.
1: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much, Dr. Steele, for joining us. And to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.